1: LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to pause the engines of capitalism, break the feedback loop between our processors and ourselves, and to restore our relationship with nature before nature chooses a better advocate than us. It's not too late to change course. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Author and technology historian, author of Analogia, The Entangled Destinies of Nature, Human Beings and Machines, George Dyson.
2: The biggest problem is sort of anthropocentrism, where we think we are the center of the universe, that it revolves around us. It doesn't. You know, look at the big picture.
1: George will be helping us take a less human-centered perspective on our place in the cosmos for our own and everything's best interests. It's time to intervene on behalf of life itself. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. We're happy to announce a special virtual Team Human Live event exclusively for our Team Human Patreon supporters. Join me in a conversation with director, choreographer, world-renowned dancer, and Chinese philosopher Yin Mei Critchell, live on December 1st. This special virtual event will benefit Queen's College's Kupferberg Center for the Arts. To register, you can find the Eventbrite link pinned to our Patreon supporters page. You, too, can become a contributing supporter of Team Human for as little as two bucks per month. Go to teamhuman.fm to join our Discord community, gain access to special bonus episodes like an election bonus monologue that went up last week, and claim special digital rewards. Join patrons like Tara Penny, Zola Jesus, Ethan Atkins, Octave, and Joshua Volus. Thanks for supporting Team Human. I know everyone is expecting me to say something about the elections. But the only important thing I have to share is this. No revenge. No I told you so's. No gloating. Truth and reconciliation, what Mandela did after apartheid, is the only valid path forward. I saw a notice of a website called the Trump Accountability Project. It's basically an effort to archive all the pro-Trump posts on Twitter and elsewhere to, quote, remember what they did, unquote. Now, the project says it's limiting itself to documenting people who worked for the administration or spent a lot of money to further the agenda of separating kids from their parents or promoting COVID conspiracy myths. But we have to be really careful about ostracizing people who need to be welcomed back into a more United States of America. A lot of folks I'm speaking with, particularly a lot of the QAnon followers there really a bit like cult victims. They fell too far into the rabbit hole. And the, the first few weird things, maybe, you know, they weren't so weird, but but they slowly bring you further and further from normal until you're being asked to believe progressively strange stuff. And then your brain can end up connecting any two ideas and produce a kind of a cause and effect relationship between them. So, you know, 5G towers caused COVID, or there were no Republican in vote counters at the bipartisan vote counting tables in Pennsylvania, right? You could just end up believing weird stuff. And it's really painful to find out that what you've believed in is untrue, just as it's painful for progressives to find out that neoliberal politicians have been cynically leveraging race theory and intersectionalism in order to control us. We're not going to deprogram anyone if we're taking names and putting stuff down on people's permanent records. No. The only way we as a civilization can change is if we accept that each and every one of us is changing all the time. The digital media environment makes it awfully hard, but we have to forgive and forget. This was actually a sad week for Team Human. We lost one of our great humans and one of my very best lifelong friends, Mark Filippi. You may remember Mark from the episode we recorded live with him at the Alchemist's Kitchen in New York City back in June 2018. Mark died of what the doctors call lymphoma, but he refused to accept that diagnosis or really the whole medical metaphor. He was rather Insufferable about this, to tell you the absolute truth, his approach to the life-threatening condition reminded me of my mother's lost battle with leukemia. She just wouldn't do any of the medical protocols. She considered it all poison and refused traditional medicine. And she died a lot sooner than she had to. But she believed that the various forms of quantum healing in which she was engaged could reverse the course of her disease. You know, it's hard to know whether to support a person who makes these sorts of choices or to try to change their mind, or maybe to do both at the same time. And with Mark, it was particularly hard. He was a a healer in his own right, not just a well-educated and talented chiropractor, but for those of us who experienced him, he's a guy working on another plane, using from Bucky Fuller to Alfred Korzybski to Irving Dardick and David Bohm. Mark's work and practice, it combined physiology, with biological clocks, and somatic personality types with organ consciousness. So, when he says he doesn't want to do radiation or chemo, it's because he feels those modalities will compromise his connection to the ethereal realm. It's as if they would compromise or, or, or occlude the natural expression of his soul, disconnecting him from his very life force from his his kundalini from his his mojo and yes a whole lot of what he objected to may sound like conspiracy theory. You know, he was one of the the main guys who treats vaccination casualties. And while those may actually be truly far and few between, he spent all day with them trying to help them learn to walk or speak or digest or breathe on their own again. And he revived a whole lot of folks who'd been totally dismissed by traditional medicine as candidates for permanent paralysis and institutionalization. So I learned to respect his decision, as well as the metaphors he used to describe what his body was going through. And it was hard, because I was also mad at him for not doing what I believed could at the very least give him some more years of life, or give me some more years of him. But Mark is responsible for my own work about cycles and time. In my book, Present Shock, there's this big section on how different moon phases are associated with different neurotransmitters. The idea is that when there's a new moon, you tend to be dominated by acetylcholine, which is great for like meeting people and having new ideas. But then as you move toward the full moon, you tend to secrete more more serotonin into the bloodstream, which is great for getting work done. You know, really for me, that was my writing week. Then on the week when the moon is starting to wane, you're dominated by dopamine, which is like the party drug. That's when you get together with people or go skiing, you know, it's downhill rush. It's you go to Six Flags, you know? And then finally norepinephrine in that last week, that's kind of cold and steely and clinical and, and analytical. It's the fight or flight hormone, but it um it's great for like, uh, for me organizing chapters or planning a schedule. It's very structural. And then as I synchronized my work, social rest, life schedule, to those four different really so- somatic lunar states, I started to feel really uh, uh, much more not just efficient, but but stronger and coherent. I mean, take a listen. This is uh, from the, the conversation I had with Mark on Team Human for an idea of how he thinks about this stuff.
0: When you're in that mode, it kind of lends itself, again, neurobenephrine is the post-synaptic neurotransmitter. So acetylcholine is presynaptic. So I'm planning, I'm planning an acetylcholine, and then I act. And when I act, I'm going to get feedback. The environment's going to say something back to me. And if we're more coherent than the environment, guess what? We have what's called influence. And if we don't, then we have to adapt. So we take our lumps. This is what evolution is. And it's the sum total of that process of I win, I lose, I win, I lose, until basically I've I've achieved some level of uh, the food chain of, okay, I can handle this set of conditions for this period of time at this intensity. And when you get pushed out of your comfort zone, like I think most of us have been in the last year or two, you have to tear up the map again. And that's why the squirrel's right. Moon doesn't care. So if you orient your behaviors, especially if you're in a crisis, especially if you're going through a lot of change and turmoil in your life, especially if you had a loss or something hit you sideways that you didn't expect, it's like the most, probably the far away, the, the most difficult thing to do, again, we're, we're in our heads, uh, is to get here, the heart, the center, 60 times stronger than the brain, tune into that, because this sucker is tuned into the lunar cycles because of the way the energy works. It, it, this thing gets it faster than the brain. Brain is basically kind of like a storage facility for good memories and traumas and things that threaten us. The heart has to act because it has two functions, organ and muscle, and it has a feel around it. So everyone's sitting around like we're in traffic court here. Uh, you're in, in these big toruses that are spinning around you, 25 feet around your body. All right? And every layer of that is the same neurotransmitters played out spatially to see, do I know that guy? who's, you know, 10 feet away. Like, if you go in the airport, you go, is that my friend? No, no, oh. is that my friend? Your brain is doing exactly what the moon is doing to you, only, you're, only now you're doing it the other direction, to detect safety. That's the first checkpoint. Is this person safe? Do I know this person? Do I like this person? Do I want to talk to this person? Do I really want to do Can I leave now? It's like you go through that constant oscillation of connection, disconnection. All those things are basically kind of grayscale. We've convinced ourselves it's black or white. That's why we're red state, blue state, we're all, we're all extreme because that it's been programmed in their neurology every day. I mean, as you listen, you can tell, I mean, a lot of it is either from, you know, Rudolf Steiner
1: or Willem Reich, things that they knew about, and certainly the stuff that indigenous people are trying to remind us of. But then Mark built on all this and applied it to everything from social calendars and healing schedules and diet, you know, to the New York Mets and giants with whom he was obsessed. You know, for the four phases that he's talking about, they correspond to four seasons seasons, four directions, even the four personality types Mark identified, the phylos and antos and ecos and exos. He's got a website about all this stuff if you're interested in learning more. It's at somaspace.org, and you can go there and do a deep dive. I think in honor of Mark's life and work, the team at Team Human is going to try to reorganize all this stuff into a more accessible archive. There's hundreds of files and recordings, even whole books that deserve to be unearthed. It's hard to lose people Genesis Peorage, in February, and now Mark Filippi. I feel blessed to have known them and to have been present to honor their passage. And I guess for me, that's the takeaway. You know, cherish the people you have and do whatever you can to rise to the occasion for their journey to whatever's next. It may be the most team human thing we get to experience here. It's my great pleasure to actually start the show, playing for Team Human this week, the author of Turing's Cathedral, about the origins of the digital universe, Darwin Among the Machines, about the evolution of global intelligence, and the brand new Analogia, the emergence of technology beyond programmable control, George Dyson. I've been following your work pretty closely since, uh, I guess, uh, Darwin Among the Machines, and in, in that intro that you wrote, you said, and I'm wondering, I guess, how much this idea still informs your work. I mean, you said it kind of, a, I guess, as a joke, where you said basically that there's kind of three players in the game. There's humans, there's nature, and now there's machines. And that, well, that you said you prefer nature, and you suspect that nature prefers the machines, yeah, <laughs> and this book that you've just written seems to argue that nature may indeed prefer the machines. That the machines and nature might might kind of I don't know. It feels a little scary, but kind of team up against us. Yeah, it's not
2: scary. I mean, I just I just I said nature is on the side of the machines, and I, yes, that still completely informs me. I mean, I think it, it's very the biggest problem is sort of anthropocentrism, where we think we are the center of the. Universe that it revolves around us. It doesn't, you know. Look at the big picture. I mean, the you know machines are proceeding much faster than we are. I mean, that's what we, what we all of course accept and know. But you know, I mean, my take is that that's not necessarily a terrible thing. That that uh, nature finds its way. The you know the life finds its way. Thing. And, and so, if if you were nature right now, sort of placing your bets. You'd bet on the machines. I mean, the things that we thought were most deeply lifelike are turning out to be little very machine-like in the sense that every oxygen molecule is exactly the same as the next one. It's very mechanical, and that's what gives rise to life. And then life itself is, or machines in the larger sense the Internet and the thing are, are looking, behaving more and more like life where they're so complex we we can't explain everything
1: there's something reassuring in seeing that oh well nature will always express itself again you know that that you know you talk about how first we had cold blooded animals then we had warm blooded animals but we started with warm blooded tubes and then got cold blooded digital that these things will always one will lead to the other but then back to the first one again that it's very cyclical which is kind of reassuring on a certain level
2: yes just, just like all these chaotic periods in history lead to the sort of phase changes. And of course, we're seeing
1: that right now. Right, and you, so you're not afraid. I mean, you're not afraid for your kids and this as we undergo this phase change. You don't think this is like an apocalyptic end-of-human-life phase change?
2: No, no, certainly not. No, I mean, it's, it's apocalyptic for, for certain institutions and trades i mean i just mean, think about the, the poor people who you know whose livelihood was making printing t-shirts for conferences or something like that i mean it's it's devastating that's the, the serious part but for sort of life as a whole or humanity as a whole i know but you have to put that in context of course i've done all you know i got really scared very early in my life doing crazy things and sort of once you've had that fear you know it puts everything in perspective
1: and what, what kind of
2: crazy things? I mean, you know, think the things I used to do, like, you know, go out in the ocean in a little kayak I made myself in water that would kill you in two minutes and without a life jacket. I mean, just, they just, you you think you're immune, but at a certain point you do get afraid and then, then everything else looks, looks mild in comparison.
1: Right. It's sort of like the way they try to cure people of autoimmune diseases now by like giving yeah, them a real exactly. infection, right? Right. Yeah. You want to be scared of something? Try this. <laughs> it's like... It changes. It changes your, your uh, I guess your sensitivity to uh, to mortal threat. I guess the thing that's uh, under threat now, in a good way, is this kind of more colonial energy, you know, this, you know, whether you call it tech broism or white Western European patriarchal colonization, that a, a lot of what you're looking at seems to be sort of how the colonizers end up colonized by the environments they go to and the indigenous people that they, sometimes that they try to conquer, they end up almost uh, uh, overtaken by them in another way.
2: You hit the nail on the head there. I mean, that's why this current story opens in the Aleutians with the Russians arriving, who, who do the opposite of the normal European model, was to go in and eliminate the indigenous technology and replace it with European technology. When the Russians came to America, they the reverse happened. They adopted the indigenous technology, which is a very interesting model and, and very successful, sort of a hybrid model, which is, I believe, what we have to do. I mean, nature does that very much. I mean, the whole genetic system we all operate under was probably originally you know some sort of terrible infection,
1: <laughs> but so but the Russians when they were coming, which they weren't even Russians, I guess they were Russians yeah, at the were, time, yeah, right? They, were- they weren't coming to. Colonize and take over the same way, say British East India Trading Company was.
2: They wanted to. They just didn't get support. The supplies they were promised from home never showed up, so they sort of had to improvise.
1: And they start making canoes out of skins and stuff, and instead of steam engines or whatever.
2: Yes, yeah, they just did whatever they could. Still, why the, I think why the Russians did so well in space for so long I mean, because they had that sense of fix everything and get it get it working. Of course, to get to America, they had to travel by land, you know, with no roads more than five thousand miles across all of Siberia just, just to get to the coast where they then could build boats.
1: Right. It was basically like us going to the moon in order to build rocket ships to go to Mars. Right. They, had a, <laughs> they were really they were out already. I guess the, the the parallel that you're trying to draw then is as we build more and more complex technologies. Eventually, the digital environment ends up determining almost more about the technologies than we are, that they take on something like a life of their own. They become, as in your subtitle, you know, the emergence of technology beyond programmable control, that there's this moment where the algorithm or the AI or the, the program just continues on without us.
2: Yes. I mean, that sort of happened already, but the important sort of technical point is that we've been completely brainwashed. I spent a huge part of my life studying the origins of the digital universe, and and that was not that long ago, 70 years ago. You had these oddballs who decided to build digital computers and claimed in a strictly mathematical sense that they could do anything. And nobody believed it. I mean, it was very difficult to convince people that the, these digital computers could actually do all these things. But, of course, they did, and it worked, and here we are, and now it's, it's gone completely full circle. It's this sort of circular revolution you talked about, where, where now it's the opposite. You, you know, it's the heretical thing now to say, well, digital computers cannot do everything. There's a completely different form of computation, analog computation, that doesn't work that way at all because digital computers were so successful and they were programmed by programmers. We like to believe that the programmers are in control and they are. They're in control of digital computing. But in analog computing, there's no program, there's no algorithm. I mean, you take apart human brain or the nervous system of a fly or a mouse or anything you you will not ever find any algorithm they're, they're just not there it's a completely different form of computation and nature uses analog computing for real time control in nervous systems and uses digital computing for error correction in genetics but but they're two different things and so we now I felt it's time to sort of tip the scales back the other way and remind people that that there is, are forms of computation that are completely beyond programmable control and we are that's what we're doing now. if you look at the internet on a larger scale all these companies that are being hauled before congress you know to be broken up their strength is not i mean they're digital companies of course but their strength is analog computing that's what they're doing they're, they're computing with pulse frequency distributions and things like that that have no algorithm at all and, and that's why they're so successful it's also why you can't break them up i mean if you break amazon in half you get two Amazons. It's foolish to think, you know, we're going to solve this problem by breaking them up.
1: I mean, it's like a Sorcerer's Apprentice thing. You've yes. got the broom, and they're each going to go. But I think it's hard for people to imagine what analog computing really is, or what it would, what it looks like. I mean, it's not computers with tubes.
2: No, you can build digital computers out of bricks Marvin. and you yeah. can build analog computers out of silicon. So sort of the important distinction is there there is no algorithmic code, there is no logical sequential program. It's effectively, you know, digital computers which we which we now accept because they're so fast. They only do one thing at a time. They just take one step and the next step, which again to, to Alan Turing was a very abstract thing you just had to live with it. it. Might might take half the age of the universe to do your computation, but it it could be done. Then we got these insanely fast machines I mean you know I remember when Steve Jobs had his next computer and it was 25 megahertz you know now of course they're gigahertz they just got faster and faster to a certain point but they still are just just doing one logical step at a time whereas analog computers do everything at once you know the brain of a fly or something doesn't doesn't go through a whole bunch of steps it just here I am there's the wall there's the Sun, there's the you know just integrates all that into its behavior. The complexity is in the architecture of the network, not not any sort of sequence of code. It's a very different way of solving a real-world problem. There's no reason we can't do that uh, with technology. We just sort of have been so successful with this digital stuff for so long. we we've kind of gone into a loop.
1: And it's just, as, it, it's funny, I mean, people hear analog computing and they'll think, oh, well, it's like, you're talking about, it, it's not the medium in which the computing takes place. Or even that it's somehow illogical. It's not like, oh, it's this random computing. I mean, in, in nature, the equivalent might be uh, the digital computing we do is our DNA, which has error yes. correction and right. all that. The analog computing we do is like our nervous system.
2: Yes, yeah, just the, the way things work in the real world. The way many of these systems work, I mean, if you, you know, Google traffic or something like that, There, there isn't some central enormous IBM computer somewhere, you know, looking at where you are and where you want to go and running a program that is, you know, it's just that every car reports where it is and every car knows where it is and, the, you know, so sort of the, the traffic itself is the Map, you know, sort of. The map is the territory, right? Which is a, a very much a signature of living biological systems. That the, you know, there is no model. There's no way to model the system that is not more complicated than the system itself. So,
1: so you let the system be its own model.
2: Yeah, the system becomes its own model, and that's very, very effective. My father used to have a. He, he came home when He always would come home and say something he'd learned. he. he this was way, way back. He he learned about the bus system in Cuernavaca, Mexico, which was the most effectively operating city bus system in the world. And in Cuernavaca they they hired these old guys who worked just basically for cigarettes. And it, so these old retired guys would just hang out at a bus stop and they would tell the bus driver how long it was since the last bus showed up. And the driver would then either kinda of speed up or Slow down. It was way, way, way pre-internet or anything uh-huh. like that. So, so the bus drivers had knowledge of, just you know, they were given the knowledge to sort of space themselves out. So, with absolutely no schedule, it optimized the bus system. The bus system started behaving like a like a physics—you'd say it was a one-dimensional gas, where mm. where the molecules spaced themselves right. out. And so, with no no central model of the bus system, you get it running really well, better than you can with any anybody saying, oh, we're going to have a bus schedule and you guys are going to follow the schedule.
1: Right, the way a a traffic circle might work so much better than the most advanced traffic light system where you've recorded and predicted and opened and closed gates, it's like, no, just let people Go in the circle, go to the right, go counterclockwise, give right of way, and it's all going to be fine. You know, it's sort of a good analog. And again, there's no symbol system, which is maybe part of what another way to distinguish between this digital and analog. In digital, we have a symbol system which is abstracted from the reality in order to do the calculation, and then we apply it back to the real world. Whereas these analog systems are the very things that they're computing about.
2: Yeah, like, like a you know a vinyl record, it's a waveform. Right. Take a microscope, you'll see the. There's apparently people who human beings who can look at a at a record and hear the music. I mean, you know, it's sort of on the spectrum of yeah, human abilities.
1: God bless them. But there's almost no one who can look at a, uh, a digital. <laughs> I mean, who knows? <laughs> we'll find out. But they're using a different muscle to translate it anyway. If they're looking at the numbers, you know, you don't show favoritism to digital versus analog reality. Although, you know, if I look at your life history, I would think you're an analog person. You're, you're like radio tubes, you're making canoes and living in a tree house and making fires and learning waves, how to surf waves in the ocean. You seem like an analog guy, but I guess the reason why you're not threatened by all this digital discrete stuff is because you know the analog's going to grow through the spaces,
2: Yes, and of course, you know, my mother was a mathematical logician, so I sort of grew up in the world of, of what you know technically are called formal systems. But but one of the things we know about formal systems, which is from Kurt Gödel, is that that they cannot be complete. I mean, they can either be consistent or complete, but not not both. So there's a limit to these, you know, to the extent of these. Formal systems, and both are going to survive. I mean, when I we talk about a, when I talk about an analog revolution, it's not we're not going to get rid of the microprocessors. Or they're they're going to be there as they always have been. There's just a layer uh, a layer on top, the same way that nature has a you know a genetic layer that is technically digital, but the control layer that is technically analog.
1: You find examples of what we could call digital record keeping in nature as well. You know, something as simple as the rings in a tree are a a digital, pretty clear, discrete representation of each season. Yes. But I guess they came about in an analog way.
2: Yeah, it works both ways.
1: So they're all part of the same little world that we're living in.
2: Yeah, it's it's a symbiosis. But with, I believe... We've shifted the needle a little too far to thinking that everything is digital and ignoring the, you know, like if you go to a computer science department, you'll have a hard time finding a course in analog computing. I mean, you'll find all sorts of coding languages and everything else, but very little. You know, we're sort of ignoring the analog side, which I think I personally think is a mistake. And the people who are working on it are are going to be like the the guys in the '60s playing with four bit microprocessors who took over the world. I mean, there, there are a few, the same kind of sort of small backroom garage operations doing really profound new forms of analog computing that are, we're going to look back and say, well, that was the big thing. And we just sort
1: of didn't recognize it. And it's interesting because everyone in the computer industry will say, oh, if it's analog, it won't scale. You know, we want <laughs> digital software based. They've got this perception that it's somehow, you, you know, more efficient because it's just. Well, they're they're programmers. That's the problem. I mean, I,
2: you know, this will get angry comments. I mean, because it's it's sort of the religion of programming. Oh, I mean, you can't do that. It's, uh, or don't you realize we do that with software already? Of course we do it with software. It's, it's again, we, we knew from the beginning we could do it with software, but you can, you can all you know. You can often do it much better in hardware.
1: I guess the, the other thing that kept occurring to me as I read this latest book was how quickly we seem to want to weaponize the technologies we come up with. So you know, you're talking about the first example of, of digital communication being those uh, mirror light towers that were being used to round up Native Americans. You know, that to send signals back and forth to each other, or you say um, we planted a flag on the moon using von Braun's rockets, then ran aground in Vietnam. Sixty years after Sputnik, the flagship product of General Atomic is not Orion, the manned interplanetary spaceship. It is Predator, an unmanned drone. Right, which,
2: which they promised was only for non-offensive reconnaissance, not that it would never be wep- a weaponized platform, but course, here we are.
1: But here we are. You know, and now, so, whether whatever it is driving it, whether it's, you know, war driving cryptography, which led to computers, or uh, the the virtual sort of uh, advertising arms race, you know, leading to the development of algorithmic prediction models and, and tracking, you know, we end up developing artificial intelligences that do deep learning and then get to a place where they no longer reveal how they're working and that is both a, a scary a good thing and a scary thing yes i mean you're you see it as the happy turn of the cycle
2: no i'm not, not saying it's happy but it's it's something we need to recognize and not believe that we're going to fix it i mean this is the most terrifying thing to me ever is this movement that says oh all we need to do is appoint an ethics board to make sure that we have good ai that that terrifies me like i'm way more afraid of good ai than of bad ai doesn't really scare me the the classic bad ai that tries to take over and you know cuz the guys here in eastern washington will take care of that real real quick but this idea that we can have some sort of of course it will be corporate ethics board that decides what ai is good and what's bad is That's scary that's
1: well if if mark zuckerberg or sergey or or kurzweil called you up and said just read your book we're starting an an ai committee you know ai ethics committee here at google to make sure we don't machine learn anything we really shouldn't will you join us i mean would you it'd be fun yeah i don't
2: i don't know i mean i sort of take the view my father had i mean he would always join those committees because he felt it was better to have somebody there uh, than not, than not. Right. So there's that argument, but but I think it's just it's just absolutely foolish. It's not going to work.
1: But the thing we lay into the AI. I mean, now if we're basically telling our AIs, extract as much data and money from people as you can for the rest of your life. Go. That's going to. Chances are, when that AI gets out of control, it might be doing worse things than an AI that we tell help people recognize the humanity and everyone else and be nice to each other by any means necessary.
2: Right. But there's this sort of fundamental insane fallacy that, you know, which comes from the programmers who are used to programming the machine and it executes the program and it does what it's told. But but by definition, AI, real AI will not do what it's told. I mean, why do we think we're going to tell it what to do and it's going to do it? It's, it's just by definition... It, so if it's not intelligent if it's doing you know it's like your child you you finally realize your child is intelligent when it stops doing what it's told you like, oh that's actually a different person it does doesn't do what i tell him or her
1: yeah but you hope that you've rewarded and punished them enough in their formative years that you know you've at least pushed them off in a good direction
2: yeah you hope so but you have no <laughs> you have no assurance and and sort of believe we're gonna always have this well-behaved AI. It it doesn't interest me. I'm interested in wild AI that doesn't (laughs) listen to instructions.
1: But aren't you interested in wild AI that doesn't necessarily listen to its instructions, but is still benevolent?
2: Yeah, hopefully. I mean, again, we haven't, haven't, but but it's so so foolish to think that it is going to operate, you know, on the instructions we give it. It may be better, maybe, you know, Jack Good, who was Turing's sort of closest companion during the code breaking, he wrote a paper on ethical machines, which is, very, very, again, very prophetic early, you know, and his argument was, well, you machines will probably do a better job than we do. We're, we're really not very good at being ethical, so we shouldn't assume that that machines are going to be unethical. They may be more ethical than, than we are. The thing is, this, this is no longer sort of academic. This is something we're living in. Even now, like right with this election, we're in this profound disconnect where we we have these systems in place that, of course, you study way more than me. I mean, these are 21st century systems that are able to predict and manipulate how people will vote with very high accuracy. But the system for counting how they voted, even, it, it was bad already. I mean, it was, it was sort of 20th century. It was bad 20th century technology for, for counting votes. I and mean, we saw that with the Florida Fiascos, and so we just we just can't count better than one or two percent error, and now we're with this you know post office kind of stuff. We're we're moving it back into the nineteenth century. I mean, so so there's this huge disconnect between the accuracy of the predictions and the actu- accuracy of being act- actually able to count how people voted. So sort of by definition, it's it's a disaster.
1: It is. I mean, so in some ways, the predictive algorithms know better.
2: Yes, than the counting then the counting algorithm, which is insane. I mean, you can count. You know, the the companies you like to complain about that they're, they're still good at counting. I mean, yeah. I mean, Google counts every every click. I mean, every click is counted. Yet now we're saying we can't count how people are voting. Why not? I mean, we we certainly could count how people are voting.
1: I would think, although interestingly enough, there's a Talmudic prohibition on counting people. You know, the census was illegal for ancient, uh, ancient Israelites.
2: You know? <laughs> and yeah, they they knew what was coming. They,
1: I think they did on a certain level. They did, and they realized it had to be, you know, uh, more of a heart thing. Like, you get the gist of it. Like even if you're doing a minion, when you're supposed to pray, you're supposed to be at least ten guys there, and now ten men or women. But you're not allowed to count the people in the room, so how do you know if ten are there?" You know, they had these long diatribes on it, and the rabbi said, you can feel when yeah. the minion is there, which is sort of back to what you're saying, that it's, it's, it's something about nature, about an inner knowing, ends up being required of humans when counting is no longer enough. It's interesting, you talked a lot about, and I always talk about noise, and my love of noise and how James Brown is not about the signal. What computers would call noise is where his soul lives, in the pieces that are not on the note. And then you say that digital computers are hardened against noise. And when you said that, again, I thought about about Torah. And there's this great section where it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You know, and I always thought about it that oh, a pharaoh kind of gets so bad he loses his free will and he becomes like a a, not an AI but just a program, you know. And you're when you say that digital computers are hardened against noise, do you mean it's that it's that ambiguity, that in between space that they just can't grok?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, yes, technically, our strictly digital computers, I mean, they each bit by definition has to be either black or white, zero or one. so even though there's a lot of noise in a digital computer, it's all been filtered out with, with marvelously just works of genius, the sort of error correction that goes on so that our our machines mostly just run billions of cycles a second and never miss a single bit. Because they, they are, yes, they're hardened against any ambiguity. And that's a, both a wonderful thing for, for many applications, but it's not... Not the way nature works, and of course, it makes systems very prone to to failure, where you have a you know sort of software controlled seven thirty seven that suddenly does something that wasn't expected. Whereas, you know, the other example would be a bird that doesn't. I mean, you know, a bird might die, but it's not going to just suddenly fly into the ground.
1: Right. It could course correct, you know?
2: <laughs> And. It's two different ways.
1: It's two very, very, very different approaches.
2: But I, all I'm saying is, why, why are we so fixated on this one approach? There's other approaches.
1: Well, because I guess the wealthiest people in the world right now have made a hell of a lot of money on this one approach, and trying to mitigate the impact of the other one.
2: Yes, but the, the, there's a lot of money to be made with. I mean, again, I think it's just amazing to me. There aren't more sort of analog startups capitalizing on this. The, behavior, you know, the remarkable behavior of these analog systems. I think we're we're doing it, but we're sort of stumbling into it. We're not deliberately...
1: Well, it's almost like we've relegated analog to the humanities. It's like the digital people will make Garage Band or whatever program you're going to record on, and then the airy, fairy, hippie, liberal analog people will play their instruments in a room, but be recorded by a digital person who has error, error-free software yes. to record, you know, the jazz musician whose errors are the, the precisely what we want to uh, preserve. You know, I was thinking, when you're talking about your dad, you know, the great Freeman Dyson, most of us experience ourselves, because we're the next generation, as an improvement upon our parents. I mean, I feel like I'm smarter than my dad, you know, partly because he was poor and I had a better education and all that. But when your dad is a genius scientist guy, what is it like? Do you feel like he was like crazy smart or is he just dad? Oh, he
2: was. I mean, he was just dad, but he was crazy smart, and everybody knew he was crazy smart. So, so no, I, I, I clearly knew it was downhill for me. Oh, really? I mean, was, you know, and, and you know, people think people are you know, always tell me, "Oh, George, you know, I, I, I really sympathize. It must have been so hard to be Freeman Dyson's son, you know, to live in that shadow, and and, and that was easy compared to being." esther dyson's little brother (laughs) because esther was like the best student the school had ever had and 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 i was always a disappointment i I was two years in school behind her and i the teacher would see i you know i'm on the list and they have all these expectations which i would destroy very quickly but in analogia there's there's a bunch of characters who drift through and there's this group of characters who are very important they were women Hel- Helen Dukas and Trudy Szilard, who mm-hmm. both were partners of great scientists Trudy was leo Szilard's partner and uh, and Helen Dukas was einstein's sort of working assistant and, and archivist and they both they both influenced my childhood tremendously because they took me aside and I don't know if they felt sorry for me or what, but they you know Helen Dukas gave me Kantiki to read and Trudy Szilard gave me the voice of the dolphins, and they both explained to me that I didn't have to be a scientist, they just made it clear my life would probably be more useful and better and happier, you know, you don't need to be a scientist, I mean, being like being a boat builder or something was would just be fine, and that that was a huge positive influence, and I thank them so much for that, rather than, you know, all the other people would say, oh, you, you know, you, little George, you must be interested in physics.
1: Right. But you got to go be one of those. The amazing thing about Esther, your sister, is, you know, I would read her stuff and seen her talk, and you, know, and, you know, okay, so she's crazy smart, right? And then I finally meet her, and she's just, like, in jeans and barefoot and t-shirt and so human and so... You know what I mean? She's so real at the same time. It's, it's great, because she could have just decided to be a scary person, you know, <laughs> with that brain of hers, but she really didn't. She, uh it's amazing she's she's uh well, the three of you are all have each done your things she
2: finally got a new apartment I mean, after living 46 years in the same apartment walk up apartment in the east village she, she finally moved so.
1: it's hard it's hard to leave three once you blocks, find that i think she moved <laughs> oh, <great. laughs>
2: so i got to tell you my, my michael nesmith story i i Please. Did, you know i want to look at one of your podcasts i i listened of course to michael nesmith so I was going to Ted one year, and I got there early and didn't have a hotel room, so he said, "Oh, you can stay with me in Carmel," and and I'm a child like you. I mean, I grew up with the monkeys. We didn't uh-huh. have a television, but I certainly knew who they were. and And my grandfather Sir George Dyson was a composer in England, and and you to me, I mean, as a child, you see, those were the two most separate things that could ever be in the world. The monkeys and my grandfather who wrote church music and composed uh-huh. some of the music for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth and, uh. and wrote the March Pass for the Royal Air Force. But So I go to stay with Nez in Carmel and in the morning he says, come with me, I'm going to show you something. And he takes me up to this nearby church and so the church in Carmel, the Church of Christ Scientist, a nice, big, beautiful church, and it, it turns out that they they lost their organist i think it was a accident or sudden death so they, they suddenly had no organist and somebody said oh you know this guy mike down the street he plays the organ so he plays the organ for that church and he took up that we were alone and he sat me down in the church and then he, he in their hymn book they had two hymns written by my grandfather <laughs> and he played them so I, I mean I never believe my life I would I would end up sitting in a church hearing Mike Nesmus of the Monkeys play my grandfather's music on the church organ. So yeah, it's just remarkable.
1: But that's it. I mean that's actually the whole book in a sense. you know that the further that the furthest you could get from that origin of music, it came right back right through the hands yeah. of television's Monkey.
2: Yeah, so there you go
1: anyway. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. Well thanks so much George thanks for what you do for for being on for being a a friend to all humans but uh, uh for coming on team human and sharing some of this it's uh you're working on the uh, what i see as the problem of this era you know and everything else in one way or another politically emotionally climately anyway is uh, is, is part of this this uh, a fundamental problem we're having with um, the way the way we think about and execute technology.
2: Yes just keep repeating the same mistakes so I'm definitely I'm on team human with
1: you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you you've been on Team Human. Our guest today, the author of Analogia, the emergence of technology beyond programmable control, George Dyson. You can find out more about George and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a paying subscriber and get all sorts of free stuff and access. And please enjoy being alive. It doesn't last forever. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. Our community manager is Michael Bass. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.